When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome one, welcome all to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. No Steve Jones, no Alex Lowe, no problem here today as we have a couple of heavy hitters for you. First, Al Dimmock, features editor from Rugby World is here. Hello Al. Hello, you right. Yeah, very good, thank you. And then there's a man who's practically done everything in rugby, Mark Evans, back for the first time in a while. Yes, I thought, you'd, I thought, you'd, I thought you'd, I'd done something terrible. <laughs> well, <laughs> something else terrible. Yeah, thank you, yeah, 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 very good. Yeah. Well, we're talking a lot about the championship today, mm. um, promotion or not, so we thought you'd be the perfect man to delve into that. We're going to speak to Ben Ward, head coach of Ealing Trailfinders, in a little bit. Um, but where were you on the weekend, lads? I was there with you at London Irish, Al, on Sunday. I was Sunday. there with you, jumping up and down. Not really. Uh, there was, yep. Yeah, Another entertaining game, Quinns and Irish teams that like to throw a little bit of caution to the wind. There was a, an awful lot of errors, but a, a massive scoreline for Quinns and they sort of underlined their uh, attack on a repeated Premiership title. Yeah, mm. I didn't know very good actually. I thought that I thought the scoreline flattered him. Mm. I really did. Well, Irish butchered three chances. Oh, I dropped at the least, ball over the line twice. At least five, I reckon. <laughs> oh my goodness, it was harder not to score. I mean, I just didn't think Quinns were that good this week and that scoreline I don't think they'll think they were very good either it's a funny old time of the season isn't it because we come off the back of the Six Nations all a bit weary of rugby but then this week coming we've got last 16 double-legged European ties pushing into Easter the sport balloons with the Masters and all sorts of else the Premier League Champions League this week you energised Mark about the sporting scene at the moment I am yeah well I, I love the Masters yeah, I, 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 Tiger's back. As Tiger's his son back. announced yeah. on Twitter, didn't he? Reminds me of my dad. Uh, you know, the, the Masters come around every day. So, um, and look, you know me. I love the Premiership above everything. So, you know, thank God we got all that international nonsense out of the way. <laughs> we can get back to what I really love, which is club rugby. Yes. Yeah, so we will delve deep into club rugby, looking back at the latest round of fixtures in the Gallagher Premiership. But also following the conclusion of the championship, we're going to get a bit of love and attention to the second tier. Ealing's director of rugby, Ben Ward, is with us after they won the title on Saturday. We'll also round up some bits and pieces from the women's Six Nations and look ahead to the last 16 in Europe, as we've mentioned, and then finalise with our god goddess or possibly a Mark Evans devil of the week. But first, here's Ben Ward. So now on the ruck, we've got Ben Ward, the head coach of Ealing Trailfinders, who on Saturday won the championship for the first time in their history. They beat Richmond 60 points to 10. Got the job done after Doncaster had won against Nottingham on Friday night. So they've won the championship. So that should be it, shouldn't it? They're up into the premiership. Well, not quite. There's now an appeal process because the initial uh, thought to coming up was rejected. And... Ben, let's get into that in a second, but firstly, how's the head? I'm sure plenty of beers were had on Saturday night. How are you feeling? 
Yeah, well, um, I'm feeling a lot better today than I was yesterday. Um, I think quite a lot of the, uh, the players and the staff continued um, the celebrations yesterday as well. But no, it was a really good night at the club. Um, I Partly um, extremely proud of what's happened, but also probably a bit of relief as well there to um, get over the line and credit to Doncaster who pushed us really, really hard all the way. Yeah. So... Um, you heard you said after the match on one of the post-match um, videos that when Sir Mike Gooley, the, e- the Ealing owner, came in, you guys were in London three, and you've been there for what eighteen years yourself. So this is a bit of a dream come true, I imagine. Yeah, um, I sort of joined when the club were in um, London two. They'd already had one promotion. Um, it was just after the um, sort of academy system changed from being an under nineteen and under twenty one teams to the, the format that it's in now. Um, so yeah, we joined myself along with a number of other players, joined the club on that um journey f- to initially try and get into the national leagues. And then when we got into the national leagues, it was kind of um we sort of moved up quicker than we probably expected. Um and then probably s- seven, eight years ago, we decided to turn fully professional. Um, and that sort of um, I guess changed the fortunes again around where we'd previously struggled to compete with the other championship sides and that sort of culminated with um, an achievement at the weekend where we'd been the bridesmaid a number of times um, but finally um, we we managed to get our hands on that trophy. Yeah so obviously now you've, you've completed the on-field task of winning the title and it was between you and Doncaster Knights wasn't it with both wanting to come up if either had won the, the title and you guys did so now the battle's off the field. So if just to run everyone through it, um, listening to the Ruck, who might not have been au fait with the whole saga. So essentially, you can correct me if I'm wrong on these bits, Ben, but in October, you guys had to apply for an audit of your facilities to see if you meet the minimum standards criteria to go up to the Premiership. Conversation then had with the Professional Game Board, the RFU, and then the next thing you hear is in March, so last month, and that you're... Um, application was rejected and I think you guys have said publicly that your idea was to introduce a sort of staged increase of capacity at Vallis Way so 7,500 capacity in year one, 9,000 year two and then more than 10,000 in year three Um, and when the statement came out from the RFU, Premiership Rugby and the PGB, they particularly highlighted the fact that you guys didn't meet that 10,000 seat capacity and I think there's more things to do with it than that, clearly. But they made quite a big deal about that. Just from your perspective, as much as you can, can you kind of walk us through the process from your perspective and how it's all been over the last few months? Yeah, look, we've been, obviously, over the last couple of years, finishing second, we've explored different options of how we can meet the premiership requirements. Um, that's involved also looking at um, ground shares. We probably changed our approach for this year, partly because... We were told the regulations were, or the rules were changing, that they were looking more at sustainability. And again, they would much rather teams have their own ground developed, have their own identity. There's not too many teams that ground share that probably make a profit or make it um, sustainable longer term. So we engage with conversations um, with the various bodies fairly early doors and made it pretty clear that that was going to be our, our approach to go to seven and a half, nine, and then 10,000 um, over a three-year period. It's very difficult for clubs um, in the championship to go and put a 10,000-seater stadium in place without also knowing you're in the premiership because 
Um, realistically, with the attendances in the championship, it would be a waste of money. Mm. Um, and again, would be difficult for, for, for clubs to afford that. Probably we've been disappointed with maybe the lack of contact that we've had in that period, because again, we did have various options or we do have various options, whether it's temporary seating to start with and then more permanent structures. Um, so, yeah, effectively, that, that that's what we put in there. Um, and then obviously we were told when the um, results of the application came out that, that we'd failed. And if you look at what we failed on, essentially it was the 10,000 seats um, or the 10,000 uh, capacity, all the other bits that go with, there were one or two other bits that go with that, but that would have been ticked by having the um, application as, or having the 10,000 as well. So yeah. it was the only thing really realistically that we fell short on. Okay, yeah. So between that period where you ask for the audit, so before Christmas and then March, did you have any contact at all? And when the March decision came that you guys were rejected and so were Doncaster, were you really surprised by that? Or did that sort of hit you guys for six because you thought you had quite a strong application, as you said? Yeah, it did. Um, no, we had um, very little to no um, contact um, with the bodies. Obviously, it's an independent audit, so it's very much based on a checklist. Um, the company that comes in is hired by um, the RFU to do that. We knew that we didn't meet the 10,000, but as I say, from past conversations, we felt we felt with the fact that we would, we'd given confirmation that we will get to the 10,000. Obviously, post-COVID, as I say, we were very much told it was about financial sustainability. They didn't want a team to come up. And I guess with what's happened with London Welsh in the mm -hmm. past, no one wants to see that. So we were very conscious of giving these financial commitments of what we were able to do and why we'd be sustainable in the longer term. So the next stage of it is obviously now your appeal kicks in having won the league. So just talk us through the timeline of that. I think the RFU themselves have said that it's an independent panel and there might be a decision by end of this month or the start of the next. Is that about right? Yeah, we believe um, the appeal will take place properly. Um, I think there's two dates start of April and towards the end of April are the two dates. I'm not fully involved in exactly what's going on with that, um, but we'd like to know by the end of April or start of next month, because obviously um, in terms of preparation and all of that, it, it makes it very difficult um, conversations with players, the uncertainty, that type of thing. It's um, difficult to prepare for anything at the moment. Ben, this is Alan here. That that was actually going to be my, my question following up now. Are you... Can you even start the process of uh, talking to players or agents or looking at the needs you've got? Do you have to treat this period as if you are going up so that when, if and when you do win an appeal, uh, you've the ball is already rolling? Or are you in this horrible middle ground where you've got to sit on your hands? Um, a little bit in the middle ground. We're still recruiting. We've done a lot of retention. Um, our current players have been fantastic in um, committing to the club. No matter where we are, they know the ambition of the club and if for whatever reason um, this doesn't get overturned and we have to do it all again, well, we've come this far and if it means another 12 months and so be it, there's probably where it's affected more is the external um, recruitment. Two reasons. One, the uncertainty for players and agents to commit to us without knowing where we're going to be. And I understand that from um, their perspective. And then second of all, from a financial point of view, obviously if we do go to the premiership here, it changes our central funding Um and obviously things like the salary cap come into play that we have to adhere to as well. So with that uncertainty, it, it, it just makes it a lot more difficult at the moment. Ben, Mark here. Um, massive congratulations for for a guy who's been at the club 18 years. Nothing but 
you know, complete admiration. That's just 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 a fantastic achievement. Well done. Um, so a little bit linked to um, Alan's last question, and, and feel free to tell me to mind my own business. Um, any idea where you'll um, make a pit, uh, put money down for the uh, to buy the P shares, as has been reported in certain outlets, or is that still to be determined? Because clearly that'll affect your central distribution, won't it? When you go to the Premiership, the money's um, obviously changes compared to the Championship. Um, we don't know exact figures because being a Championship side and not being a Premiership shareholder, we're um, we're not privileged to such information. Um, my understanding is that the shares will get valued shortly, so no one actually knows what the cost is to buy the shares. Um, and then there's a decision as to whether you want to buy the shares yeah. or not. Um, you don't have to buy them, but obviously, no. like you say, um, the way the shares are broken down, you get different um, central funding for um, the various different shares in the Premiership. Um, ben, just a couple of other bits and pieces on a kind of wider thing. Do you feel like more should be and could be done by the powers that be to help Championship teams walk them through the process? Because it sounds like from what you're saying that you make an initial application, you hear nothing, and then you're told it's rejected. I mean, we had Stephen Jones on the podcast a few weeks ago when this all kicked off originally saying it should be someone's job at the RFU or the professional game board to walk you through it and take you through the process, hold your hand through the whole thing. Do you feel like that would help? Uh, Massively. I think it's one of the biggest... um, I think it's the biggest thing that's wrong with this whole process, in our opinion, that, again, a team that has ambition, and not just us, but other teams in our division or teams further down the league... I think they should be helped. I think there should be a case of, right, you might not be where you need to be now, but let's come up with a plan of how we get you there. Or mm. um, a lot of people talk about growing the game, um, but you don't really see that at the, um, at the top as much. And it's a shame, especially when you compare it to the system in France, you now have three fully professional leagues. There's a lot more people pulling in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And it may have not been the case in previous years, but you're starting to see the results of that with the national team now as well, with uh, a lot more guys eligible for France selection. Yeah. Uh, on another point too, I mean, one of the possibly more unspoken bits of all this is there, there is a suspicion, it seems, from the Premiership possibly, that Ealing are the wrong team. If it was Doncaster in Yorkshire, if it was Cornish Pirates down in Cornwall it would suit them a bit more. And the fact that you guys are the best team in the Championship and you're five or six miles away from Saracens, London Irish and Harlequins, some would view that as saying you're the wrong team. I mean, what would you, as the coach of Ealing, say to that element? Yeah, look, we we hear this quite a lot. And as you say, there's, um, there's probably no smoke without fire with that. I'm sure... Um, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with us wanting to have a diverse premiership with teams all around the country. And I think that's really important. Again, if we talk about growing the game, um, you can't deny that a team down in Cornwall or another team in the north, that 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 would be fantastic for the game. But um, it never seemed to be an issue when Wasps were in London as well. Um, and surely, again, another team in London, London's a massive place anyway, but in terms of local derbies and stuff like that... Um, that would still be beneficial. But more than anything, sport's about the team that earns the right to do it on the pitch. Mm. So just to round it up, Ben, obviously the independent panel is going to now look at this again with your appeal. Are you hopeful that you can come up? And I don't know, what what other extra things are you just <laughs> hoping that happen in the next few months? Hope's maybe the right word. Um, 
ultimately, I think if it's a panel that's just going to look in black and white as do we meet the 10,000 criteria? Well, the answer is no, and we know that. But as I say, I, I like to think with everything that we've demonstrated to where we want to be, what the money that we're prepared to put in and um, where we feel we can get to in the next couple of years that they'd want to support a 14-team premiership. Um, now, longer term, that might be a 16-team premiership, but there is probably part of me that feels it's more hope than um, expectation just based on probably the experiences over the last 12 months. Yeah, well, look, Best of luck with it, Ben, and really appreciate you talking us through it and coming on the ruck. And yeah, keep in touch, and we'll we'll see how it all goes, and let our listeners know what happens when it happens. But really, congratulations on the league title as well. Well played. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Fantastic there to have Ben Ward, the head coach of Ealing Trailfinders, on the ruck. First time he's spoken in depth about the whole promotion situation for a while. So a good exclusive for the ruck there. Um, we asked Rob Baxter about this whole situation earlier last week um, obviously as the the last sort of proper championship team to have come up and done well in the premiership and this is what he had to say on the whole situation you asked me that question right should should there be promotion relation 100% they should and whether the criteria are correct or not I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure and, and I can tell you that the one that the, the, because the bit that does irk me a little bit about the minimum criteria is that there are elements of it that if you're in the Premiership, you don't have to have in place. Because when we had to come up, we were having to tick all those boxes. So, yeah. time before we got into the promotion playoffs, we had to start building, you know, borrowing the money to build additional uh, ground capacity at the club. We were spending money on putting things like wider doors on our medical room. That was to allow us to tick boxes if we ever got to that final scenario to even go up. So, I can't. I want there to be promotion relegation because we had the opportunity to do it, but at the same time we had the opportunity to do it, but based on as having to meet certain criteria. So for me to sit here and go, yeah, well, Ealing should just come up. Actually, we had to jump through a lot of hoops, but at the same time, I think it was ridiculous how many hoops we had to jump through to get up. And then, as I said before, you go up to Bath and you sit in, you sit in changing rooms that are have not been fit for purpose since day one of the Premiership. They don't have to readjust them. They just have to pay the fine every year. And and, they're, and that's, they're not the only one. Like, that's a bit unfair for me to just pick them out. But I think every coach in the Premier should say they're the smallest team. The smallest yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. And what to get yourself into. And just, just see what I mean. Now, but but Ely wouldn't be allowed to be promoted with that size changing room. Just, and that that's probably the bit that I feel, and, and a bit like the minimum crowd stuff can be a little bit frustrating when we all know we, we go to games regularly where the crowds aren't meeting the minimum that Ealing will have to, to put in place to be in the Premiership. So I think I can understand and I agree with the argument about why those things will seem unfair, but at the same time, they've always been unfair. Right, so that was Rob Baxter's view on it. We've had a long chat with Ben Ward about it. Mark Evans was shuffling in his seat through both of those. <laughs> what do we think, Mark? The floor is yours. Oh, don't give me the floor. <laughs> I'll be here till next Tuesday. Yeah, who's mopping um, up after? Yeah. Uh, look, it's it's quite... It's I'd, I'd like to sort of take this out of the individual club, actually. I think Ben was done a fantastic job. And I, as I said, genuinely admire somebody who's been with one club for so long and seen them from where they've come to to where they are now. It's just, just incredibly you know, impressive. Um, I, however, I mean, it's, look, I'm very much on record for t- over 20 years now. I think this is not the way to do it. Um, and people say, oh, you're anti-... No, I'm not anti-promotional relegation. I'm about having a premiership and a championship. 
that is the right size for the size of the market. That's terribly unromantic, isn't it? But that's what grown-up sports do. And I don't understand why the Premiership agreed to go to 14. I think it's madness. We play too many games, and that will just create even more because I don't see any things coming in to make it even less. I also think it's madness to have four Premiership teams within the 15-mile ribbon of the North Circular. I just think that's... The market isn't there. The, the big... Everyone goes on about Exeter. The big difference in Exeter is that they had a market, a sports market of 2 million people of Devon and a lot of Cornwall until the Pirates hopefully get there one day. Um, that's a completely different scenario. And, oh, it should only be what's on the field that matters. Well, the logical... Um, end game of that is it just depends whether you can find a sugar daddy that's just have you got a rich guy who'll fund it and is that really the way we want to determine the spread of the sport in this country I, I don't think it is I, I just don't think there are many ex good examples and this is my last point the French model everyone goes about France it's um, the point the big point that, no, that the people who use that usually ignore is it's a much bigger market it's a, just a bigger rugby market it generates more money it generates more broadcast revenues it generates just more dollars and the more dollars you have the more professional teams you can put out it's it's as simple as that so you know the french understand it because coming up from fed one now if you one of the one of the places is reserved for teams north of a sort of imaginary line running from la rochelle down to Lyon. And, and that, that, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it to try and, over a 20, 30-year period, try to spread the game into parts of the country where it's not very strong. Now, I think that's really sensible, mm. okay? But, but, but we don't do anything like that. So people cherry-pick the things they like about the French system that suits their argument. And if you look at what they're actually doing in terms of the, the, the other big differences, they give 28% of the central revenues to the second tier. Now, actually, I'm a big proponent of that. I think the championship should get funded, but someone's got to pay. There's an opportunity cost. You fund the championship, which I'm a huge supporter of, because you need a second tier, but somebody has to take less. And people go, oh, we'll just make more money. We've been saying that now for 25 years. Just drive the revenues and everything will be fine. Clearly isn't fine, because we've driven the revenues a hell of a lot. And it's just got swallowed up by costs. The model, and I sound like a, rec a broken record, the model is broken and we keep talking about little bits of it mm. in isolation which are interconnected with a whole load of others. So, you know, I suppose my conclusion is just not the way to do it. Yeah. On the point we made with Ben and you've made there about um, the French leagues, the geographical point, mm. um, we know you've got involvements with stadium for Cornwall yep. can you talk us through the the project there that might be a longer term thing yeah well it's this is where I agree with Rob Baxter is the fact that if a club is long term got ambitions to play at the highest level it's a long process and it's a whole it's a multi-layered process it's a partly about your playing partly about the playing standards but it's partly about facilities it's partly about the fan base I mean have you got an audience will people come and watch rugby in your locale now, in Exeter's case, they clearly ticked that box. And they were always going to tick that box. You know, you look around, it's all about, have you got a big football team? How many people have you got? All these really sort of factual stuff that, that determines whether it will be successful. 
Um, and I just don't think... There was a reason why Wasps and London Irish left West London. Mm. And those reasons haven't gone away. You know, so... Irish and come that's, back, and the Irish have come, yeah. And the Irish, of course, have come back. And we'll see whether, um, whether that works. Irish, um, have, Irish come back and are ground sharing. So it was interesting to hear yeah, uh, Ben yeah. talk about whether you know, ground shares are a successful model for making money. Actually, it's it's a little subject that I wanted to, to go down on and take a jump from because sometimes you wonder if if Ealing build, uh, gradually build this magnificent stadium that's, that can host 10,000 people. Uh, I'm interested to know who will be sitting in it because... Famously, they're not a club that draws an, an enormous crowd. We were talking off air beforehand when we were streaming in the days where fans couldn't go and uh, attend rugby. That actually, it, it feels like they were the the lowest viewing figures for people uh, outside watch streaming the game and, and watching it online. Where the interest lies will be interesting because whether if we say okay, romantic meritocracy, they've played their way into the position. They are still in this massive market competing with established teams and Will and I were at uh, London Irish versus Harlequins uh, yesterday and they had an attendance of uh, just over 13,000 people. Um, they have an interesting model where it's a subscription to go. It's an interesting one to look at and they had 15,000 for their St. Patrick's Day game. It seems like Mark's looking at me because we're going to talk about attendances and this is the reason mm-hmm. why I'm bringing this up. So there's a lot of chat about attendances at the moment and it's an interesting jumping off point for Mealing because the, there has always been a massive question mark about how many people are going to rock up and, and see them play. Uh, Mark, did you see at the weekend that the Bulls in Pretoria yeah, dropped the prices of tickets to the equivalent of about £1.30 and they had almost 20,000 people in the stand. But still, there's been a lot of discussion in South Africa about, even before COVID hit, plummeting attendances it's a it's a bit of a uh, an interesting one for you because also this weekend we've seen uh wales uh, versus scotland women uh, they they had the record crowds of just under 5000 people went and watched that france women uh, for la crunch uh, sold out already bayonne is going to be absolutely hoaching there's going to be loads of people to watch that there seems genuine interest uh behind that when it leaves me wondering what the hell is the right model the answer is it depends which market you're in and and cornwall which will raise is an interesting one what what is the stadium for cornwall project partly based on it's partly based on the stadiums in the wrong place you know cornwall's quite a a a a big place for travel time wise and there just aren't enough people down at the bottom end near penzance there just aren't enough people to support a premiership team there was a funny quote about that last season where dickie evans said most of our catchment area are fish Correct, and <laughs> and it's a, it, they're the Barrow in Furness of in, in the equivalent in rugby. There's the Cumbrian clubs, not enough people, although they love the game. And Truro was picked because it was in the middle of the county, uh, and there was some land. And there, there's some strategic thinking behind that. Would it work? Don't know. But we knew that Penzance wouldn't work. It, it's just not a big enough. It's just not enough people who live down there. You've got to get somewhere all the Cornish people could come because at the moment, support Exeter. But there is a there is a mark. We think there's a market there. I just don't think the West London market. People talk about London. The market. The market's not r- London for rugby. It's West London. Mm. You know, you go and talk to Saracens about how hard it is to get a crowd out of North London, and no one's even ever tried in the South and the East. Well, why? Because there's hardly any rugby in those. There is some. 
So all my friends at Eaton Manor, I'm sorry, you know, I don't mean to denigrate the the, the the really good clubs that are there, but there are very, very few of them. So when people talk about London, it's just a misnomer. It's like talking about Paris. It, it's just, that's not yeah. your market. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, this is going to rumble on, isn't it? And as Ben said, and we, we noted the, the appeals now kicking in, and we'll find out about that end of this month, early early next month, whether Ealing do make it a 14-team premiership or not. And to end it off, because they did win the championship, here are the sounds of the dressing room. They had ski goggles on to spray champagne in each other's eyes. So whether they get up or not, at least Ealing was celebrating. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, right, let's delve in, as promised, to the Gallagher Premiership. And why don't we start? It was a Saturday game on um, BT Sports, Northampton beating Bristol really comfortably and alarmingly for Bristol their defence was all over the place I think all five tries they conceded were within three phases which is not great is it and there's it seems like a wider problem with Bristol they slide down they've slid down to 10th now having been top of the table last season lots of wranglings off the pitch possibly messing around with the salary cap what on earth's going on there guys well where'd you start I thought they were really ordinary at the weekend having been much better the week before away at uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, first half, they didn't look like they wanted to be there. It, it was it was desperate. They only wanted to play one side of the ball, you know, the nice easy side when, you, you know, when you've got it. They, they didn't seem to give a toss when Northampton had it. Uh, it was, they tightened up a bit second half, a bit better, but they couldn't have got much worse. It was just desperate. Mm. The headliners are not playing anywhere near where they were Rans, a, a Rans, season Rans, and two seasons ago. Piertau, I think they'll both be gone mm. by next year. Um, Save a bit of dosh. There's a one and a half million. Well, there's an... Uh, wages, uh, so alleged, allegedly, well, yeah. allegedly, I wouldn't claim to have seen the contracts. <laughs> um, but 
I think if they're in as much salary cap problems as it has been reported, and I've no, I don't know whether that's true, but you'd hope it hadn't been printed without you know reasonably well sourced. Um, they're gonna they're gonna go through a sticky period. I mean, I, I thought that I thought that they're not anywhere near they were the 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 the, the headliners and. Their whole attitude just seems... It, mm. When a team plays like that, usually there's something going on. I have no idea what it is, but there, there's something going on. The only shining lights for me every week is Jeffries and Harding look the real deal in the back row. And Jeffries, why isn't he starting every week? He is a real hitter. He's mm. somebody you want in the trenches. He really is impressive. Um, yeah, not right. Mm. So, Mark, we mentioned the, the salary cap. Uh, situation with Bristol there. Just explain to us what exactly has been reported to have happened there. Okay, this is quite arcane, so bear with me. I'll try and make it as short as I can. It has been reported, and I do stress that it has been reported, that a couple of years ago when the salary cap went down, a number of clubs, including Bristol, renegotiated them very, very quickly in order to basically keep paying higher salaries than they otherwise would have been able to. That's, that's it, put as simply as I can. A lot, quite a lot of them were two plus ones, two years, and then one option. And of course, apparently, the option date for next year passed without any without any kind of action, or in certain people's cases, that it effectively wasn't terminated, and they now are in contract for next year at quite a high level, and that's pushed them about four hundred. Missed the deadline essentially. Missed the deadline, pushed them about four hundred thousand over the salary cap. It is alleged. Again, I don't have. I'm not party to the details. That's what's been reported. If that's the case, on top of everything else, that looks quite tricky. Yeah, and Bristol have just to clear that up. They've said they conform to the salary cap as they would do, and will always conform to the salary cap. But Al, you've got a bit of a wider point on Bristol. Well, yeah. The thing is, even if some financial issue or salary cap issues here or there necessitates a fire sale of sorts. Root and branch change is needed within within that club anyway because it it genuinely feels and listening to dispatches from f- people in and around the club, there feels like there's a certain level of disharmony anyway, and it's it's pouring out into the pitch. You can see it in the performances, but also, you know, we got this in the wake of a massive contract for Pat Lamb, and we've spoken a bit in the past about windows of opportunity and you know we saw it with Pat Lamb at Connett where there was a a three year process to get Connett to the stage where they won a league phenomenal stuff Bristol there was a project to get them promoted they realised that and then there was the project starting over again to try and win a title and my god they came dangerously close last season only to slip on uh, a quarter coloured banana spin with with Quinns and it feels like they're having to start over again but by trucking on with this group it often feels like there's, as I said, a window of time that you can tolerate the style or that Bristol use, the death by detail style, mm. and it can become very wearing. And this is a team that looks weary. Yeah. They just look like they are, a lot of them, over it. And we've spoken in the past and said that there needs to be change anyway. So the, the young stars, 
that Mark mentions there, the, the Fitzhardings and, and Jeffries of this world, are the kind of players that need to be promoted and pulled through because they might believe in the project. If it's going to continue the way it's going, you need new blood in there because otherwise there's going to be a lot of dissent and it's going to become more public dissent pretty mm. quickly. The optimistic bit of Bristol is their crowds are holding up really, really well. Hovering around 20,000 uh, Terrific. Week. You know, the biggest rugby city in England has, I think regardless of the problems of this season, are back in love with their team and think in the long run they're a real player. I mean, I would too if Steve Lansdowne was my owner. <laughs> um, and they're in a great stadium and they've had, let's not forget, they've had much worse times than this. Um, and they were t- they won the League Leaders' Shield, if we had such a thing last year, or the minor premiership, whatever you want to call it. That's an achievement in itself. Mm. It's not all doom and gloom, although I agree largely with your analysis, Hal, but I think the one thing you do hold on to is we've got a real large, hardcore support back and mm. there's no sign that they're jacking it in. And if you want to rebuild this, as, as Mark says, it's not going to be a problem for this organisation. They've, the, they've got the well of resources and they've got some people behind the scenes. They've got the infrastructure mm. to do it. It's just... Something's got to give. Yeah, great ground, great training ground, great ground, great yeah. crowd. They've, they've got good, wealthy owner. They've got everything you need to be mm. a real player. Apart from defending. <laughs> <laughs> Just on a statistical note, which I'll shock listeners to the ruck about, that I'm interested in a stat, but... Just looking at teams that have finished top of the Premiership, what they've done the next season, Bristol currently in 10th and possibly not going to get much higher than that. The last team to do that badly, backing up, finishing top, was Sale. So they won the league in 2006 and then the next fin- season finished 10th and no one mm. else has dropped that low. And Sale never didn't come back for a long time. That mm. was almost like, that was the Brian Kennedy project, the, the mm. Philippe Saint-André project, project achieved and then that was it. Well, it's an interesting segue to talk about Sale because, you know, we can look at the result that they had at the weekend and whether they're now dropping out of contention for the playoff places. They're another team that is going to have to, for very different reasons, is going to have to see some major changes at the club next season. Speaking to some people in the north, there's a sense that some lads possibly have checked out. Um, But we know that they were going to be losing some big South African meat up there anyway. Um, We fully expect announcements to come that... uh, Faf de Klerk will be heading off to Japan and, and that Lou Dieger is heading back to South Africa there are a couple of other names that you're hearing uh, of South African players that uh, are looking for an exit and they're just trying to decide which exit they will be taking um, and obviously when Sanderson came in there was a real sense that he was going to be patient with it he wasn't going to rip things up right away he was going to see where things went inherited a, a lot of personnel inherited a, inherited a bit of a playing style inherited a coaching staff and it now is the time where next season we'll see what Sanderson sale really looks like yeah. because it's sort of drifting away now a little bit. Well, they're adding George Ford, aren't they? They're adding Johnny Hill. They're adding yep. Tom O'Flaherty. So yeah. a bit more sort of British In- core there. English core, yeah. <laughs> rather than the South African meat you're talking about, Al. Yeah, yeah, certainly there's that sense and and there'll be that. But also one of the other things I keep hearing from people is the amount of musical chairs that we're going to be seeing um, as as it, the salary cap bites and the changes that have come in are, are really start to take root that we'll probably see a couple of players switching between clubs and now's the time where you'll really see, right, which coach rates who. I was heard an awful lot about the log jam at Hooker that they had because they'd invested an awful lot in young hookers that are premiership quality. We've now seen two 
two of them uh, head off to Worcester to to join their uh, previous director of rugby out there and that's what we mean so we're going to be seeing a a little bit of shifts here and there and it's just probably who can pick up the best bargain and mould them into the the style of play that they've got and Sanderson's obviously highly rated very well respected speak to a lot of people up north who say he's exactly what they needed it's just now got to take place and see his vision yeah and, and they weren't that far away this year they had a terrible start and 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 they just didn't and it never really quite got it back i mean saturday's game was a classic you know mm. they just didn't take their chances they they had they got into the 22 an awful lot against saracens and came away with absolutely nothing and then they got frustrated and in the first half hour of the second half their penalty count was off the scale and that was enough to get Saracens came down, got one try, kicked a couple of kicks. Thanks for coming. Mm. You know, typical Saracens performance. But Sale aren't that far away. And I know we said this year we'll see the Alex Sanderson team, but I agree with you. Alex, I think it's next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I tell you what my one of my Premiership highlights was of this weekend? Go on then, Al. Dan Robson's drop yes. goals. Oh yes, beautiful, amazing. Uh, I mean, Will and I, as mentioned, we were we were at. London Irish and there was two goal line dropouts in that game from guddling and errors in over the try line and people not quite killing plays off and that's one of those where we'll get to the end of the season and we might end up speaking to a match official in, in podcast to come about how we've now seen the, the, the law changes and how they've affected this season the goal line dropout is one where I'm still kind of confused about yeah. in fact there was a question we asked in the, the press box uh, yesterday is if someone boots Boots a goal line dropout straight into touch. Does that do they retake it or is it a scrum five? Do we go back to the old law? It was one of those where genuinely we all should know. But even in this room now, uh, normally with stuff like this, I look to Mark and he'll have a clue, and he's he's shaking his head furiously. (laughs) Um, I think we got to the the nub of it, and that it was a retake or scrum five, which is obviously the old law that we had. Yeah, yeah. Um, But we and it's there's a question about whether what Dan Robson did, which was phenomenal, he caught a goal line. Uh, drop out and then dropped a goal back yeah beautiful when we talk about ping pong that was the most sublime finishing move uh, (laughs) from from that um will we see people try and attempt more of that i don't know but i loved seeing it people people would say it would happen a lot from the 20 at the beginning of the year i remember people saying oh people just drop kick it back first time i've seen it it was terrific there's been a couple in the urc haven't there south african lads and i think maybe george ford tried one early in the season couple up at altitude was it yeah Yeah, possibly yeah (laughs) but just on wasps that was when they kicked the ball out to end the game, they were absolutely roaring, weren't they? That was a really important victory Huge. for them. And Gloucester, it felt two or three weeks ago that they were right on it to become the fourth place team. They had that weird cancellation against Worcester, which we're yet to find out the points allocation for that. Um, but a couple of defeats, uh, it's getting a bit tight there, Mark, for Gloucester. Yes, I still think it's theirs to lose. Mm-hmm. The, the, when you look through it, and of course I have, you know, because I'm a nerd like that about the run-in. I, I still think it's theirs to lose. They're going to have to go to Quinns maybe and get a result, or or win all their others except the Quinns game. I think that's pr- maybe more likely. Yeah. It's a tough place to win the Stoop these days um, for the away team. The one thing I would worry about Gloucester is not so much on the field as off, and I'd say the same about Northampton. And that's a bit of a theme in today's show, but we like to, you know keep these things running through they are the two sort of two of the traditional rugby club giants of the english game gloucester and northampton town teams no real football of any great standard in there of any great level sorry cobblers fans in their town uh always had good crowds before a lot of other clubs had to build theirs up like the london teams um 
they're a bit low. Mm. You know, when both of those teams are going well, you know, Northampton are on a real, really on a roll. Gloucester, uh, everyone was everyone's top. They, oh, they'll be top four. They'll be top four, and, and and a much much better season than they've had recently. And that both of those teams aren't getting the crowds they used to get back in the day. They used mm. to all both get sort of regularly 14, 15, 16. That's about their capacity. They're now getting 11, 12, 13. Doesn't sound a huge drop, but it's it's significant. It's percentage-wise, it's significant. And I I don't quite know why. We talked about Bristol and their crowd looks to be with them and they're sticking with them, even mm-hmm. though they're not performing particularly well. I must say, I'm really surprised that Gloucester and Northampton aren't higher. They're not one of those sides like Falcons, Sale, um, Worcester, who have traditionally struggled to consistently get over that 10,000 barrier. They're, they're, they're two teams that have been way past that for a long, long time, and that's a little bit of a worry. Yeah. Is that, are we over the kind of COVID nervousness period? Maybe people, not. No, maybe not. But why are we? Why would we not be over it in Gloucester and Northampton? Well, yeah. be over it in the Stoop, Exeter and Leicester? Mm. And that doesn't... And Make Bristol. tickets £1.30. Yeah. Follow the Bulls <laughs> model. Follow the Bulls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, Al's got this idea, and I think he's attracted to it because he texts me about it. It says that, well, just in between... And I think there is something in it. I do think some rugby product in various countries, and clearly South Africa trying this now, uh, are too high um, for 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 the for the market. And and uh, Wales, look at the the Welsh one at the international level. You know, into Italy on Friday night. I mean, that was just that was woeful. Mm. Um, and okay, you can say that England where well, the tickets are 150, 200 quid, but people will pay them and they and they will at the moment. Whether that's how we grow the game is a different argument. But cheap tickets are not always the answer. You've heard me say many, many times, and free tickets definitely aren't. Yeah, yeah. But expensive tickets don't help either. No. So we'll just rattle, we won't touch on in detail all the games, but just to rattle through the other results, Exeter beat Bath 42-22, which is a pretty decent result for great, them. Great, great game. That was much, much yeah. closer. Much, much closer than the scoreline suggests. Absolutely. Bath played really well. And Bath threw away another lead. They were, the previous week, I think, 21-7 up, and this week they were 22-0 up. 22-7. Yeah, 22-7, yeah. yeah. They, they, they played really well. They looked mm. much better. Yeah. And then, we, then as Al's mentioned a couple of times, both of us were at London Irish Harlequins, where Marcus Smith, I think it was 50 days we'd worked out, he hadn't he hadn't thrown a try-scoring pass since the Italy-England game. But also then he saw got two in five minutes. And then we saw Danny Kerr get his fifth yellow card. Yes. <laughs> uh, dirty, a, dirty player. Well, there was a funny note. So, <laughs> By the one, way, Tobias Matson made that exact same game. He did. Sorry. And there was a funny sorry, note tabs. from someone in the, in the office at the Times who, while well, I was doing the match report on the game, they said, oh, they've just mentioned that on TV. And he's equaled Gareth Archer. Oh, one of the great hitmen. Yeah. Well, I, I really bucked me up when I saw him even mentioned in dispatches. Yeah. Uh, Gareth Archer, for our younger listeners, what a, what a fearsome man he yeah. was. The boogeyman. People oh. used to check under their bed for him. <laughs> <laughs> but the note they said was that, I'm not sure Gareth Archer's were all for deliberate knock-ons. This no, five no, no, no. Well, there was a bit of a question mark about it, actually, because no one, again, this is one of the, I'm sorry I should highlight how little we know, but it's one of those things where it's like, it's they weren't for foul play, so when you rack up this many, is there going to be a repercussion, or no. are we just going to crack on? No, you're going to crack on, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Gareth Archer's were, were half the same. They were deliberate. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> knockouts maybe. Most Not of them. Knock-ons. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there you go. There's the, there's the Premiership. We covered most of that off. Um, so next, we'll do a little look at the Women's Six Nations, preview a bit of the last sixteen of the Heineken Champions Cup, and end with our God Goddess or Devil of the Week.
so Women's Six Nations, guys, a couple of record crowds, which was really good to see. And the first one was at the Cardiff Arms Park, where Scotland, I mean... Were you, were you crying several rivers for your, the Scottish women there? I think Scotland women played really well. It was a very entertaining game. And it's one of those where I, I, I'm not going to be one to gallop right away and say that professionalising more has, has had such an immediate impact. But very clearly there's a benefit to um, having more time together to bed in systems. And we, on the other side of the ball, you could see the fact that, well, firstly, Phenomenal play from Alicia Butcher's. Oh, you know, right to, to to identify the gap, uh, and to see it through, and to put the pass in. Uh, hell of a step. Phenomenal play, and deserves all the credit in the world. But also, Scotland looked knackered and oversold uh, the defensive rush there and they left a hole that you could drive an 18-wheeler truck through <laughs> and fair play to Alicia Butcher she spotted it and it was to be honest I actually think it was one of the best things for the game because it was an, an enthralling finish uh, an awful lot of emotional people to see this turnaround that Wales have put in to to come from behind in two games in a row just phenomenal stuff and it's if you're a fan of of Wales to see where they've the doldrums that they've come from to this mm. in a, such a short period of time phenomenal stuff for Scotland it's yet another example of l- snatching defeat from the jaws of well snatching defeat from the jaws of a draw <laughs> no. I don't know how to phrase that one I won't do the accent but Al's being our sort of um, Alan Hansen figure of like yes a good try but the defence was terrible <laughs> well no look I mean full full credit to Wales and it's phenomenal stuff and I, as I just said there just just a great story but also uh, you know you can see the lack of cohesion there at the end with, with Scotland just just looked like they, they, they couldn't keep up and it's they're going to have to turn that around because one of the things we can touch on is the fact that an enormous score for the Red Roses no. another big score for France and as we say every season there's there's a clear clear separation between the top two and the rest and that final game is going to be sold out which is going to absolutely. be epic, isn't it France-England where's that played? in Bayonne and, uh, the Bayonne game right? Yeah. and they absolutely love a game of rugby there there will be a carnival atmosphere mm. it will be phenomenal mm. and yeah it's, it's one if you get a chance to go out there well it's sold out already, I think. Yeah. So you're going to struggle too. But if you're lucky enough to have got a ticket for that, I mean, it's going to be a cracker. On the note for the for the Red Roses, Emily Scarrett scored her 50th try. And I think she's on 98 caps. So that's a hell of a record, isn't it? Yeah. I, I Can I be a bit of a damp squid beer? Go on, Mark. Yeah, 72 nil. Not great. 40 points to whatever it was. France mm. Island, that. It, it's not good. Um, You know, and that's why Wales Scotland was the best game. Because I don't yeah. care what level you're playing about playing at it's about uncertainty of outcome and having a fair contest and I would just float this I'm not sure Six Nations is the right format yeah I'm really not they'd be fiddling around with it a bit Spain is it another option is well, it for women's side I just think that you've got to get if, if this is your premium competition and all the metrics of coverage on any of the media social broadcast you know, print, it is, you, you cannot just have five weeks leading up to Le Crunch. Uh, La Crunch. Oh, oh La sorry, Crunch. La Crunch. Sorry, <laughs> oh, my laws. Can we recut that out? Le Femme. Le Femme. Um, it's just not, it's not good for the women's game. It's really not. And I know there are people talking about it. And goodness me, haven't we talked in the men's game 
that oh, some are saying, oh, if only we weren't so entrenched, we'd have a global season by now. Mm. I see that, and I know it's quite expensive, but I, I think there's enough... Funnily enough, I think there's probably enough money in it if you restructure it to finance that. Mm. You know, because you get things like buy on more often and you get... I mean, I just... I'd certainly have a look at it because here's a bit of a history nerdy thing. One of the best things that happened to men's rugby union happened in 1895 for oh, the Six Nations. I remember it well. When the, when the game split. And in the, lead, in the years leading up to that, England had begun... Become, begun to become dominant because they're the biggest country obviously yeah France went in it at those stages four nations and the split with rugby league weakened England for a generation and got all the other teams up mm. and then until you know and then since then it's been really quite I and Sc- Scotland we still talk about that day in Huddersfield as being yeah yeah, yeah 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 well I'm telling you if you look at you look at the results and I, and I fully accept not a lot of people do look at 1890s international results mm. That was purely by accident one of the things that kept the four, five, six nations competitive. Yeah. You know, and I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's completely disingenuous to bang on about Italy, one team out of six, and ignore what's happening in the women's game. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, the women's go to round three next weekend, and it's England-Wales, which should be decent. Wales with a couple of wins, England with a couple of wins. Then you've got Scotland England by England by 40. Yeah, do you think so? Yeah, yeah. I do. Scotland France is the other one. Scotland needs to pick themselves up. That could be otherwise a, a tasty afternoon for them. And then Ireland Italy is the Sunday match. So Jess Hayden will be back with us next week. She's had a week off because she's had a busy old time of it recently. So she will be back with us next week to talk us through all the women's stuff. If we now go guys to the last sixteen of the Champions Cup, it's going to be quite fun. Two legged. What, I'm going to run through the fixtures and you can just pick out maybe one each mm. that you're really excited about. So Friday, Connaught Leinster, all Irish affair. Then Bordeaux, La Rochelle, a bit of an Atlantic derby on kickoff on Saturday. Sale, Bristol, we've mentioned a lot about those in two different places. Toulouse, Ulster, Exeter, Munster, Parisian derby, Stade Francais, Racing, rounds off Saturday. Then Sunday, Montpellier, Harlequins, and Claremont, Leicester. Which are you m- going to point your remote control towards Al uh, well I'm interested in uh, Toulouse v Ulster because uh, Ulster had been having a pretty good season up uh, up to this point um, they, they came unstuck against the Bulls at the weekend um, Toulouse they're sort of coming back they'd, they'd had a bit of a sticky patch I mean it's incredibly competitive in the in the top 14 it'd just be interesting to see where they are because there are a lot of fixtures in this where it's countries uh, teams from countries very very familiar with each other that this is an opportunity to see a clash of style so just purely for that point of view I just want to see how they rub up against each other I'm n- need no excuse to go to Claremont uh, I'm not going but I'll be watching um, Leicester probably will win the Two leg, I think, but will they win in Claremont? I, I've got a lot of people have heard me on the ruck this year. I've got a lot of time for Leicester. I think they're a really good side. Mm. Um, I'm really going to be fascinated to see how they go. They did really, really well. Was it down in Bordeaux? I mm. think in the group. Um, can they do that again? If they can do that again away, it's another little indicator about how mature this team's becoming. So that's one I'll be keeping an eye on. It's a, the, the, I suppose the more interesting question is. 
Well, you're you're going on an odyssey through oh. France next week. Is which one are you looking forward most to sampling in the flesh? Well, so yes, the lucky old readers of the Times, depending on whether they want to read my copy or not, are going to get three match reports over the weekend from Breve Saracens mm-hmm. in the Challenge Cup. Really excited. Never been to Breve before for that one. See what team Saracens got. A pick. couple of decent bars for you there. If okay. You're interested. okay. We will talk after the podcast. <laughs> then uh, Toulouse Ulster going to that one, and um, as I think we mentioned a few episodes ago, Antoine Dupont was our. Rugby Writers Club, uh, Pat Marshall Award winner. So we're trying to get the trophy to him after the game at some point. So we'll try and do that. And then Sunday, Montpellier Harlequins, which Zach Mercer against Marcus Smith. I think they were in the same thing in the 20s. So that'd be quite fun yeah. too. Yeah. So yeah, of those three, uh, I would, I, you can't not love watching Antoine Dupont in the flesh and Cyril Bailly. We had a lot of that in the, in the Six Nations. But yeah, I'll, I'll earmark that one. And if, if I can get a picture with Dupont and the Pat Marshall trophy, it'll really round that off. Right, so plenty discussed this week, everyone. And it's God, Goddess or Devil time. Who do want, wants to go first? Mark, you've previewed us off air and said you may be donning your horns again for a devil. Yes, haven't done it for a while. Um, it's the faceless rugby administrator <laughs> who this weekend allowed a level eight game, level eight, to have to suffer the same ridiculous law as Italy suffered in the Aviva. The down to 13. The down to 13, off you go, son, you got no front row replacements. It's level eight. What, which game was it? I can't say. I, they, 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 told, they promised me I, would, right, I, promised okay. I wouldn't use it in there. It's level eight in the London and southeast region, okay? okay. I, I just do not understand why we are so inflexible to apply the same regulations from the World Cup all the way down to level eight and lower in Mm. the English rugby leagues. I think it's utter... Are we trying to put people off playing the game? Mm. You know, and telling you, I'm not having to go at the referee, but but then they they got a yellow card and went down to 12. But that's neither here nor there, right? Because that could... Well, I don't know what that was. I've no idea. That made me totally deserved. Mm. But what are we doing... I mean, really, please, can somebody somewhere get hold of these, and there are others, and realise that we are doing things that will put people off playing the game at that kind of level, which is so important for a whole host of reasons. Okay, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to... my devil of the week. I'm going to put... I'm going to constrain Mark here. I'm just going to drag him off away from the mic here. Uh, <laughs> because if, if, if we had a Hall of Fame for Devil of the Week that was someone that would be in every... I'm pretty sure Faceless Administrator would be in there <laughs> every single week. Yeah, fair um, point. So I, I wanted to focus on the game. Obviously, I mentioned Dan Robson. He was in the running. Antoine Dupont set up... Uh, an incredible no try at the weekend um, that, you know, it was phenomenal. If you get a chance to see the clip, he makes this break. Some guys from cast try to dismember him. Uh, he somehow pops out of nowhere and under the shadows of the posts puts in a cross field kick from the base of a ruck for a try that never happened, but it was just absolutely ridiculous. Um, however, I didn't go for him. I considered going for Hugh Tizard, who put in mm. an incredible performance yeah. and is a talent on the rise. Um, but I'm going to stick with who I mentioned earlier, uh, Alicia Butcher's just phenomenal moment, goddess of the week for me. Epic. Um, yeah, on uh, Tizard, Tabai Matson came out with a good quote. He said he's like a Toyota Hilux turbo diesel. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah that's exactly what he said. Yeah. So, right, rounding off, I'm going to pull some heartstrings, and there was a really sad announcement at the end of last week that um, 
Welsh flanker James mm. Davis has had to retire um, due to concussions. He's a great bloke, real character, Olympian, won a silver medal at Rio with the Sevens team, um, won a fair few Welsh caps. Brother, obviously, Jonathan Davis, cubby boy, the tattooed knuckles, the stories of gambling in Vegas, real character of the game, sad to lose him. So we wish him all the best in his retirement and hope that all goes well for him. So he's my god, I suppose, of last week, but yeah, wishing him well Perfect. to finish it all off. Right, so everyone, that was The Ruck. Thank you very much to Mark. Welcome back to him. Thank Pleasure. you very much to Al. Plenty tackled there. We'll have loads more on the European Cup next week um, with a, a new, improved, fresh panel for The Ruck. Thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.